It's another blessed occasion, isn't it, in which we're able to assemble and to gather to offer worship to the great God of heaven. We're so mindful and so, in fact, appreciative of the bounty of blessings that He has heaped upon each of us, the characteristic of health that is as good with you as it is with me today that permits us to assemble. I'd like to again express a word of appreciation to Ronald Strong, who, who filled in so capably last Lord's Day, thankful for the messages that he delivered and brought, challenging and so very encouraging. And yet today, as we come to yet a continuation of our series of lessons, I hope we can study some more about the family this morning. I suppose it's fair to say, isn't it, that the family is such an incredibly strong element as we find it in the Word of God. It seems reminders on almost every page about the integrity, the strength, the character, that which God would wish it to be. And today we're going to study a little bit about part three that casts a spotlight on the female of the family, the woman. As we do that, I hope we'll be reminded, of course, about all that God has to say. Let's begin with these introductory remarks, if we might. So far in our series, we have noted that the family, of course, has as its origination the great God of heaven. He has its blueprint. He has its patent, if you please. And therefore, if it's to be as it should be, as it could be, it must follow His instruction. It must follow His orders. In the second installment, we cast a spotlight on the man. And we learn that God has given to the man a number of responsibilities related to the family. Responsibilities inclusive of its leadership. He is its head. He is the one to which God points and gives him the obligation to lead it in the way it ought to go. All of us as men have been challenged and encouraged by that. But today we're going to ask a bit about the woman the female counterpart, if you please, in, in that family. As we do that, I might ask you to notice, the Bible lifts very high the position of the woman. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 16, as well as Proverbs chapter 31, verse number 10, we see the precious jewel that is the wife and the woman. Her price is far, far above rubies. And as the inspired writer therein would describe it, it sets before all of us, a constant reminder of that very critical place that's occupied by the wife, by the mother, if you please. And so as we come to the bottom of that slide, why don't we then use our time today to think about the woman as God would have us to think about her and her role and her obligations. One of the things, of course, that you and I could readily say would be that there is far, far more material than we could in fact do in one lesson, either on the man or on the woman. But I've selected a, a few ingredients from the Word of God that I hope will be a great encouragement to, to all of you ladies in the audience. As you think about the prized possession that you are in the very gleam of God's eye, and the way in which you and your family can in fact do that which God would have you do in a way to truly glorify and honor what God would have, would have you understand and do. Surely one of the first things might be to very clearly appreciate this. We understand, even as we've been discussing it on Wednesday evenings, that indeed God fashioned the man first. And although that's significant, may we never, of course, forget the fact that Genesis 1.27 says this interesting thing. So God formed man in His own image... Male and female created he them. And so when you and I think then about the woman, the female, she of course is an immortal spirit just like a man is. 
She, in fact, is totally unlike any of those other things that God had made on days five back to day one. She, of course, could be described in ways like this. That immortal spirit, just like the man, she too will never die. She and the man, of course, occupy that incredible high position. Not an animal, either one of them. They occupy that position, of course, that they have the capability of expressing some of the very attributes of God Himself. I would ask you to think about it maybe in light of those statements in the middle part of that slide. The Bible graces us with so many special and very precious and lovely ladies. I've just listed a very small sampling of them. Across that desert of 1 Samuel, we have finally come to chapter 25, and there Abigail takes center stage. Now we remember that her husband was a very uncomely sort of fellow. The Bible even calls him churlish. He quite frankly acted rather foolish. But yet here he was blessed with a woman, a wife who was far wiser, quite frankly, than he was. And yet, perhaps she only brings us to recall Esther. She saved an entire race of people. When she approached the king in Esther chapter number 4, we remember on that occasion that she did so with courage and valor, ultimately saving not only herself but the entirety of that Israelite race from the terrible onslaught of that sentence due to Haman. Apart from Esther, what about the sweet mother of Jesus? Of all the women, God handpicked her to bring His Son into the world. She apparently had some very noble qualities. In fact, we see a few of them as the gospel accounts unfold before us. In addition to that, perhaps we could mention the other Mary and Martha who are close friends of Jesus. It seems they often had the blessing of Jesus abiding or dwelling with them. One by one as you look at all of those things. Would you pause for just a moment and think about this with me? History records for us on so many occasions that women, at least in the ancient society, on many occasions were looked upon rather lowly, almost as if it was an insult to be a woman. May we never forget that God lifts through His Word, even in that book of Proverbs and others, the powerful way in which it was His intent that a woman be appreciated. Far different than many of those ancient societies, God has always had a high regard for the woman. Sometimes men have erred as they, of course, tried to put her in places to which God never put her. Today, as we study the woman, and we appreciate her place, her location, if you please, in the family, maybe we come to the bottom. We mentioned earlier that she, too, an immortal spirit. Therefore, she needs salvation. Praise be unto God that the very same plan of salvation, dutiful for a man, is appropriate for a woman. God didn't have a different plan of salvation for a female as in contrast to a male. In Acts chapter 8, we remember that as the gospel had been preached for some time, we see a lot of emphasis on the man to be sure. Those Jews gathered in Pente on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But as we arrive at chapter number 8, we see very clearly and very powerfully set forth truths like this one. And when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. Women obeyed the gospel in the same way the men did. When we arrive at Acts chapter 14, 
we remember the special case of a woman named Lydia. She was a seller of purple, and yet as she listened to Paul preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, she too, with her household, obeyed that precious gospel, and she became a Christian. Today, then, when that invitation is extended, it's every bit intended for a man just as much as for a woman. Aren't we thankful that there has been no distinction made relative to things like that? You might notice at the bottom of that slide, God also, of course, expects a woman to be faithful. We highlighted, didn't we, that God expects a man to be faithful, but He also expects a woman to be faithful. Once she obeys the gospel and once she becomes a Christian, it is to be expected that she will utilize her talents and capabilities throughout the fullness of her life in faithful and humble obedience to the Master. Faithfulness. Perhaps that reminds us of the 16th chapter of the book of Romans. In that chapter, we have a number of ladies who were listed, and as Paul commended them for their service to the church, some of their names will in fact live throughout until the very end of time because they're included in the Bible. How well do we recall Aquila and his wife Priscilla? She's mentioned right alongside him. And how well do we recall Phoebe in Romans 16.1? Later in that chapter, other ladies are listed. What a great service they rendered to the cause of Jesus Christ. So far as we have at least utilized some time to reflect upon the powerful statements in regard to a woman, let's look even further though. What else does the Bible say about those obligations and those specific statements that are directed toward a lady? One of the things that we commented some two weeks ago was that God has much to say to a man in relation to love. We'll never forget, of course, that explicitly to the man, several times God said, love your wife. Now, husbands, I know all of us think often about that, and we reflect upon that commandment given to us from the Almighty God of heaven. But you'll notice that women, too, are such that much is said regarding love concerning them. I suppose when we think about love, it's probably fair to say that in many ways a man shows love differently than a woman does. That's the way God made us. There's no reason to apologize for that. God, in fact, made the man and the woman different in a number of ways, and that appears to be one of them. As you think about, though, what God says concerning the woman, may we, in fact, attach this directly to the character of God Himself. Remember, God is love, 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8 tells us. And yet, because man is made in God's image, man is capable of love. But because, God, because the woman is made in God's image, she too is capable of love. May I submit to you that in many ways, we almost instinctively do some of this. That was true of the man, and it's also true of the woman. Most often, certainly, a woman doesn't have to be told to love her children. It comes instinctively. She loves them so very dearly and so very powerfully. But yet we find in the Word of God some statements that begin like this. In Titus 2, verse number 4, as Paul wrote that epistle to Titus, we may remember that Titus was positioned in a place that was a very cha great challenge. He was on the island of Crete. 
You may recall that Cretans were not known as very positive individuals. Titus chapter 1 informs us that often they were given to lying. People on Crete apparently were known for falsehood and lying and living in a way that was far, far beneath what they should have been. And yet in the midst of that place, God had Paul tell Titus, you tell women, those wives, to love their husbands. As you and I then think about that character of love in Titus 2 verse number 4, here were some instructions then that those ladies on Crete, as well as of course you and I today, should still appreciate as a worthwhile message for, for, for a, a wife to love your husband. Probably again, as you think back to the day of your wedding, and you made profession that I love you through sickness and in health till death do us part. Each of them on that day made a profession of lifelong love to the other one. It was a profession through good times and bad. It was a profession through hard times and even those that are sweet. But love is a very vital part. And notice the word that's there, same one used for the man last week. It is a love by virtue of choice. There will be challenging times in any marriage. The onslaughts of life are often going to be weighty and many, and yet there is a dedication involving the love on her part to her husband. That love perhaps leads us to note the next one because in the very same verse it says to love her children. Now one more time, it may seem as though one wouldn't have needed the Holy Spirit to tell us this. May I ask you to notice though that even in that day as well as in the modern, there are individuals who make an almost unbelievable choice to cast off a child or at least not express love toward it. May we notice that there the ancient ladies were told, love your children. Now you and I realize as the Word of God develops that love, that's going to include a number of things. Don't always give them what they want because they don't know what's best for them. Discipline them. Mothers, of course, have a charge to do that. Dad may not always be around, and even when he is, maybe she was the one affronted by what a child did. She in love needs to, in fact, appreciate and have that child understand the enormity of maybe a choice that he or she made. As a wife is thus told, as a mother is told to love her husband and children, notice what comes next. I might use this as an opportunity, again, to say something to the men of the audience. It may well be that a woman perhaps is of a meeker spirit, Maybe in some cases she is of a more timid character. Fathers, men, we ought never ever allow our children to disrespect their mother. If they say something, we need to correct that at once if the mother doesn't. We at once need to put a stop to that. That child needs to know what the law of the mother is. Proverbs chapter 1 verses 7 and 8. That child needs to respect his or her mother, even if it's a boy. He needs to understand that mother is exceedingly important and you never, ever disrespect her, either in word or in deed. We as fathers could perhaps be a greater assistance to that on, on some occasions. As you think about that attribute, what else does the Word of God have to say in relation to the blessedness of motherhood? In 1 Timothy 5, verse number 14, 
Paul gave a few words of inspired wisdom. He made these statements in a particular situation concerning ladies there in that city of Ephesus. These ladies were widows, but I think it's very significant what it was that Paul had to say. You may notice in verse 14, among the duties and charges that were given to these ladies, he says, they may remarry. And when they do, they are to guide the house. I've actually asked you to think about that in, in particular. Forevermore, we appreciate something very significant. Men, you know it as well as I do. There's a fundamental distinction between the capacities and capabilities that God has given to a woman and those He has given to us. You and I may be extremely good at certain things, but when it comes to guiding the house, man is no match for a woman. He has equipped her in a particular way to guide that household. Now notice, the man may still be the head, per the Word of God, but she has been given the charge she has been given the duty surrounding and very much involved with the overall guiding of that house. The literal Greek word means to keep the house, to run the household. She is able in an ongoing way to maintain and to sustain things that we as men often let slip through the cracks, I fear. May we in fact hold up her hands as we encourage her in that way. May we do so in such a way to assist and to help. It doesn't say she has to do it all, but we can be her assistant, or at least we can follow her lead or take our consideration relative to carrying out those which she would perhaps inquire or ask us to do as she guides the house. You'll notice the reason that she in motivation does it is because she loves her husband, she loves her children, and she wants that household to be the pristine thing that God would have it to be. Maybe as you think about all of that with me, it brings us to that on the bottom. For the very same verse has this statement to say, that she in fact should be in such a position that there is no occasion for reproach. Now notice when Paul made that statement, there were those in Ephesus who often maybe could have looked upon a household and with a degree of reproach could have insulted it or at least criticized it because of the behavior of those ladies. Among other things, they could perhaps be a busybody going from house to house, doing this, that, or the other. Paul said that ought not be the case. Well, you'll notice give no, approach, no reproach. And that given message is still as vital and as useful today. A woman, for that matter a man, should desire that his or her house not be one open and subject to the criticism of the community as if it were an open blotch or blot upon the character of what God would have it to be. Of course, a woman has a strong part to play in that. You'll notice one final thing. Taken from the book of Numbers, it seems that there's another comment certainly worthwhile to assert. It's easy enough to see from the Word of God, isn't it, that just as surely as we've noted it, it's worthwhile to say it again. God has equipped a woman with some very special capabilities and skills, and among them, if she wishes to do so, she can in fact make a very strong direction for a number of things. We all know that if she wishes, she can almost wrap a man around her finger. 
She can, in fact, lead him to do things and to move in directions and to say things that really wouldn't be terribly appropriate. But he does it because of his commitment to her. He does it because he doesn't want to cause any difficulty, if you please, in the home. He doesn't want to make a fuss and he doesn't want to make a quarrel. The Bible makes reference to the wiles of a woman. Ladies, use your skills wisely. Your man loves you. Your husband loves you. And he desires to please you and he wants things to be well with you. But as you give thought to that, consider the way in which you're able to utilize your ability to motivate him, to lead him to be the kind of man that you would and God would wish him to be. We'll have more to say about that in just a moment, but it seems this was an appropriate time to put it in, it, in its placement. As we develop it in just a moment, let's do one other thing first. It has to do with a term that so frequently appears in the Word of God. I would like to ask you to consider submissiveness for, for just a few moments. We have highlighted before in our study of the man last week, he should be cognizant and very much so of the duty given to him. The same is true of the woman. It's a completely different role, I admit. But still, let's develop it like this. She is given expressly the duty and the obligation of submission. As you and I think about some of the terms, I have in fact included verbatim two of the statements. One drawn from Colossians chapter 3. You'll notice it simply says, Wives, be in submission to your husbands as it is fit in the Lord. If we pause there for a moment, we notice this. That last phrase mentions, as it is fit in the Lord. That is to say, as it is appropriate in light of the Word of God. Now, we know that if a husband were to command a wife to do something in violation of the Word of God, she ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. But on a verse like that, when we appreciate as long as his requests, as long as his leadership is not in violation of that Word of God, she is supposed to submit to him. Look at the way it's stated in Ephesians. In the fifth chapter, verse number 22, Wives, be in subjection to your husbands as unto the Lord. So as a woman strives to be faithful to God, as she strives to live in a manner harmonious to that which God would have of her, that is inclusive of submission to her husband. Interesting, isn't it? And yet, as you notice the next point, those are by no means the only two places that those kinds of ideas or thoughts are found. In 1 Peter chapter 3, I'd like to read a more extended passage, beginning in verse number 1 of 1 Peter chapter 3. As the inspired apostle Peter made these statements, he again stated them to a group of ladies. Let's listen to what he had to say. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. Let's pause there long enough to notice that this subjection on the part of the wife was not just to a Christian husband. Even if he isn't a Christian, Peter wrote, be in subjection to him with the hope that you may win him to Christ. Verse 2, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, while that husband appreciates the dignity that is you, 
the way you choose to live, the honor and the manner in which you set forth a chastity in your life. Verse 3, Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair or of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. Now we understand what Peter's saying. He isn't saying it's sinful to braid your hair or to wear a necklace or a bracelet of gold. He's making the distinction to choices. If I choose to just fancy myself up and ignore all my other duties, even including that which involves my husband, Peter said, don't do that. The finest thing of all, verse number 4, is this. Let it be the hidden man of the heart. In that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Oh, what a special treasure it is for a woman of a meek spirit, a quiet spirit, an unassuming spirit, who nonetheless has a person of courage and strength. Your husband will know that. He will admire, in fact, appreciate you for that. It's one thing to be able to look fancy on the outside when it's not so on the inside. Paul said, first start on the inside, or rather Peter said, start on the inside, and then let it emanate perhaps to the outside if that's your wish. Verse number 5, For after this manner in the old time the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Peter makes record even of the ancient era when here were worthwhile women, notable women, who were subject to God, but notice they weren't subject to their husbands. Surely in light of that, he then says, by way of example, verse number 6, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters are ye, as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. Of those ladies in the Old Testament, he chose to mention Sarah. She obeyed Abraham, the text says. She chose to live in subjection to Abraham. Isn't it interesting? It says she even called him Lord. I don't know that today many women would feel kind about calling their husband Lord, but maybe in a moment we can talk more about that as well. The fact of the matter is, though, there's something inherent in the honor that she directs his way as she appreciates her submissiveness to him. As you notice near the bottom of that slide, it seems though this is certainly a wise place, or at least a prudent place, to mention this thought. If it is the case that by order of God, a wife is to be in subjection to her husband, that clearly means that a woman should think very, very, very carefully about the man she chooses to marry. For after all, if she's got to submit to him and he is not one to help her in her Christian journey, she might better think not twice but more than that about choosing to bond herself with him in marriage. Ladies, marry a man that will help you get to heaven and will not put impediments and hindrances before you. By the same token, gentlemen, choose a wife with care. Someone who not only will happily submit to you, but you as a leader can lead her to heaven. That you can give her the proper direction and motivation through life. It is a beautiful thing to think about marriage as the Word of God presents it. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, doesn't that help us see in the Old Testament that sweet example of Ruth? 
when we come to that book of Ruth, we remember that Ruth, of course, suffered mightily as her husband died. All that was left was she, of course, Naomi, her mother-in-law, and then, and then the, the other uh, daughter-in-law. Ultimately, that decision was made to go back, of course, to that land of Judea. And when they did, we ultimately remember Boaz entered the, into the story. What ultimately happened? Boaz was not the nearest kinsman. There was one nearer than he. And yet, Ruth had a desire, and she stated it so very eloquently. Cast thy wings over me, she said. She wanted Boaz to be her protector. She wanted him to be the one to make provision and leadership for her. Put thy wings over me. She stated that in Ruth chapter 3. Might we say today then, in light of that, what a sweet record that is. A woman will thrill at the thought of submitting to a man who loves her in the same way Jesus loved His church. She will thrill at the thought of calmly resting beneath His wings of leadership, protection, provision when He demonstrates and illustrates that love toward her. That's the way God made a woman. She naturally will respond to that when the man directs that degree of love to her. However, all of that says, as we give thought to submission, maybe we can come near the last section of our lesson and make one last set of thoughts. It was the lesson text of the day. And you may have noticed it there in verse 33 of Ephesians chapter 5. May I ask you to, to turn back to that particular chapter with me? The closing verse of Ephesians chapter 5. It's an intensely interesting thing to think about the way in which the Apostle Paul closed that chapter. And of course, as you and I know, he did it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he endeavored at length to highlight the submissiveness of the wife to her husband. Verse 22, he highlighted the love that the man shares to his wife. Verse 23 to 24 and 25. Throughout the course of that discussion, he describes the way a man loves his own body, and of course, by parallel, so to a wife. But as you get to the closing verse of the chapter, there's one set of thoughts that's final. It reads like this, Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. Now, it's interesting, he had just stated not many verses earlier, Husbands, love your wives. Why did he say it again? Well, for one thing, repetition is always a vital matter, and so often it carries with us an interesting thought. If God said it more than once, surely that highlights an intense degree in relation to it. But you'll notice he says one final thing. That final instruction to the husband, love your wife. As I mentioned, she will respond to that in a very special way because, again, God made her that way. But you'll notice it says, And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, he hadn't said that earlier in the chapter. It's as if here was yet another matter that was of such keen interest, and it's the last section of our lesson this morning. What did he mean when he said that a wife is to reverence her husband? Well, here are some initial thoughts. I would preface this by saying almost what's obvious. In the dynamic of a family, the woman and the man are very different. 
And that just isn't physically in relation. There's something about the psyche of a man and the psyche of a woman that are intensely different. They react to things differently. They see things differently. They, in fact, are compelled in different ways. We each know so well that just in a general fashion, a man, more often than not, is centered around the thought of solving a problem and moving on to something else. If there's an issue, if there's a problem, he concocts a scheme whereby he solves it and then it's finished. For a woman, more often than not, that's not so critical. Now, she may too be interested in solving problems, but she does it very differently. She prefers to discuss it, to communicate. All of us as husbands know that. It's far more important for her to express her feelings in regard to it. The solution is almost secondary, not to say it's unimportant. Remember, God said that we should dwell with one another according to knowledge and according to wisdom, 1 Peter 3, 7. As you and I develop that, you'll notice that one thing we certainly can say is this. It's the very matter of this verse before us. Notice again. One final thing, husbands, love your wives. One final thing, wives, reverence your husband. Here are some thoughts about that. That word reverence carries a bit of weight with it. I'm sure every lady in the audience might wonder, so exactly what does that mean? Today, isn't it true, we use the word reverend, or at least denominations do, in regard to a preacher, someone who almost occupies a place very close to that of God. First of all, notice that that particular word in Greek, this word that's translated reverence, it can be used in a bit of latitude. And to be sure, there are places where it is used in the sense of incredible fear. You and I are supposed to reverence God in that respect. In Matthew 10, 28, fear God, right? Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the whole duty of man is to fear God. Now, ladies, please notice, God is not here saying you're supposed to worship your husband. We're only to worship God. This word is not being used in this context that way. But another way in which that word is used is respect. And it appears that's the overwhelming message here. In fact, I've tried to identify it exactly in that way. That word means respect. Ladies, wives, it seems to me that there's something very critical that the Holy Spirit is sharing with us on this occasion. I stated earlier that, again, men and women often react very differently to things. They approach things rather distinctly. Men, you and I know that our wives, as told to us in the Word of God, they are so open in responsiveness to our love as we demonstrate it, as we illustrate it, as it is an open testimony to what we do on a daily basis. They will react and respond to that so very critically. But here's the other side of that coin. What is it that makes a man tick? What is it that a woman may do to which he will respond in such remarkable character? May I submit to you, it appears to be what's in this verse. Your respect. A man can go through life in many ways. 
And he will, invite, he will be able to live and survive in many ways, but he'll never be the man he could be. He'll never be the kind of man he ought to be without your respect. That's what makes him tick. He wants you to respect him. Now, that's not to say you may always agree with him, but at least respect him. Isn't it fair to say, in light of a statement like that, that a man, among other things in his household, he will be but a shell of what he ought to be if he senses his wife does not respect him. If she says things, either in public or in private, that belittles him, disrespects him, maybe even disgraces him, I assure you, that's part of the way God has made a man. He has a psyche in which he will never become all he could be, the greatest leader and husband and father he could be without your respect of him. Some have even highlighted and thought about the ways in which that speaks about the character. Again, ladies, your husband, more than anything else, wants to be your hero. Look up to him. Now, as you do that, again, I'm not saying agree with him on every occasion because a part of your respect will be he will appreciate you for the earnestness and sincerity with which you present yourself in love before him, but respect him. That's the last thing in that chapter that God wished wives to know. It is a part about the male psyche. He needs your respect. And if he has that, a lot of other things can perhaps not be as they would have it, and yet he will be satisfied and happy. He will be a devoted and powerful husband and father. But without that respect, he simply is a shell of what he otherwise would be. Now, as God has told us that, you come near the bottom of that slide. Look at the way Sarah directed her husband, at least in that regard. The text says she called him Lord. Now, we know that word Lord, that's in lowercase letters, of course. That's not the same as calling him God. Sarah didn't call Abraham God. But she did honor him and respect him by virtue of the language she used. Ladies, may you do that with your husband. At least with respectfulness, with terms of devotion. And as you do that, he will be the remarkable leader God would want him to be. And you will be proud of your husband and he will be the individual that can set the leadership terms of your family in the way that both you and God would wish him to do it. As we close our lesson this morning, having looked a little bit about the female side of, of the family, we have been motivated by thinking about the great blessing of a godly home. Many of us in this audience have been blessed. You grew up perhaps in a godly home, and to this day you dwell in one. Thank God for it. So many families on this earth don't have a godly father or a godly mother, maybe neither one, and yet you and I can appreciate what a richness it is, what an amazing blessing it is. For those reasons, we've seen the woman is the image of God. She was made that way. Different from a man, to be sure, but nonetheless the image of God. And we've studied about the love characteristic of the mother and the wife. We've studied about the submissiveness characteristic of the same. And finally, the reverence, the respect she used to direct to her husband. I trust we've each been motivated to give thought to these matters today. We'll continue our series, of course, by looking at some other features of the family. All of that will come, of course, on our next occasion. It might be today, within the sound of my voice, there's someone who is not a faithful Christian. 
Maybe you've never become a Christian. Don't you see what you're missing? Jesus died on the cross for you. He shed His blood for you. And He wants you to be a member of His family. If we could assist you today in your public obedience to the gospel, realize it's His plan of salvation. He demands, of course, you believe in Him, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And we would be so joyous to assist you in that. If you have become a Christian but you have not been faithful, come back to your first love today as you make confession of those sins known publicly. We'll pray to God for you. And God has promised to forgive you. If we could be of help to you today, won't you come even now while together we stand and while we sing?